0: Time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. It's Tracy Silverman. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast for The Greater Groove, the future of strings. And this is where we're talking about how we bring strings back into our cultural mainstream, the popular vernacular music of our time. You know what I'm talking about. Hip-hop, rock, jazz, all of that stuff. And I've got on the show today... My good friend David Wallace, he is an award-winning composer and master teaching artist, and we're going to talk about that also, Uh, who currently serves as the chair of the String Department of Berklee College of Music. He has appeared in solo performances with Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, the New York Philharmonic, to name just a few, has a great trio with a flute-viola-harp called Hat Trick. And he's also got the Texas-style swing band, the Doc Wallace Trio. So this guy is a thought leader in the field of teaching artistry, and he wrote a couple of books. His first book, Reaching Out, A Musician's Guide to Interactive Performance. And he recently just wrote another a book on teaching artistry called Engaging the Concert Audience. And my good friend Rachel Barton Pine wrote uh, some wonderful words about this book. She said, Engaging the concert audience should be required reading for every musician, young and old, professional and amateur. David's passion for music leaps off the page and challenges readers to consider the fundamental truths of what it means to be a musician. Why we do what we do. That's some pretty heavy words from an amazing artist herself, Rachel Barton Pine. Doc Wallace, good to
1: have you on the show, man. It's great to see you. Thank you, Tracy. Good to be here and good to see you too. And I should add, Engaging the Concert Audience has several pages featuring Tracy Silverman Uh (laughs) describing his experience of his first prison concert for a women's prison which to this day is one of the remarkable memories i have in terms of audience connection oh thank you man Challenging circumstances, too, but, you know, he had these ladies in tears and connected and left everybody smiling, and it was a a real textbook and connecting with audiences. So so thank you for filling up two or three pages of my book.
0: (laughs) Glad to do it, man. What can I say? They were a captive audience. But uh, it was fun, and it was actually a a remarkable gig, and it was very cool to have you there and to be able to... to, um, kind of dissect afterwards what we had just been through because, uh, um, you know, it is definitely a different experience to perform in a prison than in a concert hall, I gotta tell you. But uh, I want to speak with you about what you do uh, and how, especially how you groove on there because you are not, you, you did go to Juilliard, you graduated Juilliard. In fact, you got your doctorate from Juilliard. (laughs) So we know you know how to play that thing. Um, But you also do a lot of non-classical work on it. And that's what we're going to dig into today. And in fact, we're going to (laughs) start as far from the classical world as we could probably get. Uh, And we're going to do a little groove hacker segment here. And this is the part of the show where we take a tune um, and we we listen to it for a second on the record. And then we're going to go, how in the world do we play that on a string instrument? And we do this because there are a lot of kids who want to play the music that they love on the instruments that they love. They don't want to have to learn guitar to play it or learn how to play a keyboard. I already know how to play the viola how do I play some Iron Maiden? So, uh, <laughs> question I hear all the time. So, um, so what do you got for us? And with metal.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> so how do we play Iron Maiden on a viola? Well, I think that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, and honestly, the, the tune we're going to groove hack is the Trooper, one of the classic metal. Yeah. Th- and this is uh, was kind of like the climax for a concert that uh, electric violinist Chuck Bontrager and I put together. We've been teaching at Mark Wood's Rock Orchestra Camp, oh, it was all the way back to about 2010. But the last four years, we've done a combined collaborative concert called the Chuck and David Show, and we've done a lot of metal, mostly Metallica, but Tool and some other things, and people... Yep. Are- You got to do some Maiden. When you're going to do some Maiden, I mean, you get those twin vipers going. (laughs) So last summer, uh, you know, I said, Chuck, we got to do the Trooper. You know, there's only one Maiden tune. You know, there's plenty of good ones, but like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one. So uh, we actually wound up needing to do this remotely. So we did a remote Chuck and David show and released it as a DVD. Ain't No Christmas This July, a global <laughs> spectacular, which actually features Tracy singing. A- <laughs> Very briefly. I-, I kept your solo vocals that every now and when I need some cheering up, <laughs> we'll meet again. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> Over. Well, actually, some of the things that I'll share about unlocking the groove of this tune are going to get into some pretty subtle areas, and I am also need to tip my cap to Chuck because he's the one who orchestrated a symphonic metal arrangement of this. So it's basically a trio of... Expanded range electric violins, so you have uh, him and Valerie Vigoda on seven strings and me on a six string and so he wrote for a solo trio just like on Iron Maiden you had the, the three guitars playing in harmony, then you had a string quartet, acoustic string quartet part, and then a metal orchestra part. No electric guitars at all, but an electric bass. But Chuck made some decisions, which you know we'll we'll unpack a little bit to see how how he unlocks this groove. So maybe could we listen just a little bit? Yes. <laughs> One of the, the things that I will say on record is when Tracy wrote the strum Boeing approach and book, it kind of like all the scales fell off my eyes. And it's like, this is the <laughs> this is the way to do things. And so when I'm figuring out Boeings and figuring out the groove, I will always take it to the groove on the smallest particle of the groove, and I will line up the downs and ups. Now really deeply influenced by um, a music theorist named uh, Leonard Meyer, who had written a book called Emotion and Meaning in Music. And some of that book is really locked into note grouping and looking at um, strong and weak parts of the beat. He, he makes the point, rhythm is architectonic. And what that means is you have all these different architectural levels of groove and pulsation. So like you've got a strong, weak, or a strong, weak, weak if it got a triple subdivision. And so on the level of the subdivision, even 16th notes, you've got strong, weak, strong, weak. Then the eighth note, strong, weak. Then the quarters, if you're in two, four, strong, weak. And so what that means is when you're dealing with these different levels of groove, you can get into areas where there might be a different interpretation about should this be down or should it be up. But the the first thing that I'll say is um, my friend Joe Denenzone read Boeing, and he's like, this is the truth. And I've just decided whatever picking direction the guitarist uses, that's right. And that's what... (laughs) And it is true that for like jazz grooves and funk grooves and a lot of pop grooves or red hot chili peppers, you're going to be gold. But on something like this, you're going to be dead. Because that groove, if you wanted the, the picking direction, they're like... Down, 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 down 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 down, and then it's like down 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 right so if i'm gonna do that at tempo uh, yeah right <laughs> i mean yeah. yeah like earl Manian would probably right. do that and rachel barton pine would probably do that with ricochets and it'd be gold but if you're trying to get a whole string section to do that forget it you know it's not going to yeah. happen and so in a way to unlock this groove, Chuck and I had to look and say, well, what is kind of the most important climactic moment and where do you want your downs? You know, it's like, where do you want the downs? Where do you want the beat? Well, how do you deal with all those slurs and things? You know, if you do yeah. all separate. It's too scrubby. Yeah. And, and you're missing it because the, the guitarist and Maiden are doing all these pull-offs, which right. are kind of giving them that group. So let's try, what if we do down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. That's going to be heavier than if I'm doing up, up, down, up, up, down, up, up. Down. Yeah, sure. So, yeah. you know, I think in some ways you've got to kind of decide what is it that you want to do where is it important and sometimes the guitarist will be a guide sometimes it'll be a red herring you know
0: yes and you know Strumboeing is the same way the idea the concept of it of of um physicalizing the subdivision in your hand uh is helpful for the most part um you know just the idea of keeping like and that you can you know, change it wherever you want, all those kinds of things. But it doesn't work all the time. Um, and there are times when you you need to phrase something in such a way that it's, it's going to just sound better. Uh, and sometimes in a situation like this, the smallest particle of the groove that we refer to as the groove-on um, is so fast uh, that it's the... I guess if it was a if it was an EDM thing or even a super fast funk thing it might make sense to do that separately because the groove is more consistent like that and and the groove on is more present throughout it but in a situation like this that little it's almost like an ornament more than an actual subdivision right so the subdivision is really... But that that little thing there is the smallest particle of the groove. So if we went strictly strumboing on it, it would be like... Right? But that's not really the intention of that groove. So you have to use your your head a little bit and, and your ears mostly, uh, and know when to, you know, diverge from like a pattern like growing, which is just supposed to be a helpful tool and not a doctrine that you have to follow all the time.
1: But if you're zeroed in, if you're locked in on the eighth note, the strum bowing is the guide, and it works because it's like you have to have. In in a sense, that's also about feeling the the deeper levels in layers of the subdivision. Because if we're tight throughout the stroke and we don't feel the rebound or the subdivision of the subdivision in our bodies, then we're never yes. quite get it. Yes, so true.
0: It's so true. And you know, we often talk about. That your groove is made up of a series of accents and ghosts. Some come out, some don't. But in reality, it's much more nuanced. There are as many different levels of accenting
1: and stressing and unstressing as you can create with your instrument, as you're capable of. And honestly, I think that's one of the exciting things about playing boat instruments as opposed to plectrum. I mean, a lot of times I've lamented, oh man, these things are heavier and clunkier and it's harder with a bow to get that kind of precision. But on the other hand, once you've plucked the note, yeah. life has already begun to die, you know, and and unless you've got some sustain or other things, but you can't swell in the middle you can't make the middle of the note lead somewhere else and so in a way being able to unlock those other parts of the subdivision it really you know gives us the opportunity to have a rhythmic life that's beyond the plectrum instruments yes
0: yes exactly we can do a lot of the things that guitars can do if we Alter our techniques a bit to accommodate it. But then we can do all kinds of things that guitars cannot do. And in this, this is kind of the whole purpose of this podcast and kind of the purpose of my career, I think, (laughs) is to explore how do we bring this incredible subtlety and nuance and uh, this incredible dynamic range uh, that's capable, that a bow is capable of, uh, and, and apply it to our popular music, to our vernacular music, take the same uh, nuance and, and attention and care that we use when we're dealing with Bach, well, how do we do that with Iron Maiden? Because, okay, maybe we, we're not really, you know, these are false equivalents. We're not exactly saying Iron Maiden is <laughs> as good or whatever, as, as the same quality of Bach. I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, to, to make that case. Uh, I am tr- making the case, though, that our vernacular music Uh, will be richer and better because of the input of string players rather than only guitar players or synths and keyboards. String players haven't really been heard of much in the popular world. And uh, I'm hoping to fan these flames and to get young people at Berkeley and where you teach and all over over the world um, to do things with their strings that maybe... I haven't thought of uh, and maybe break new ground and try new things. It just seems like we ha- there's all of this incredible potentiality of the bow on the string that just hasn't been explored in our vernacular music uh, fully. You know, we're doing, we got the chop thing going. That's uh, it's kind of an innovation in the last, let's say, 30 years or so, 30, 40 years of string playing. Um, but it's just, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. And uh, <laughs> and this is the kind of work that you are doing at Berkeley with young people, and it, it it makes me wonder what kind of training you would like to see the applicants to Berkeley having, like when they come when they show up at your doorstep, and the fifth floor string department. Of uh, 122 Boylston? What is it? I forget the address. Boylston. (laughs) (laughs) When they show up up there and they get off the elevator, what are you hoping they're going to bring to your string department? What would you like to see? What kind of, of high school programs can you imagine in a perfect world that they would have come from? And what would your ideal string education look like?
1: Well, I have to say, I'm really kind of happy with the quality of students that we're getting. I mean, when I first took the job in 2014, a lot of times people were asking me, what's the ratio of students in terms of their background about classical or jazz or bluegrass? And I have to say that even from that point, the majority of our students were coming to us fluent in more than one style and more than one genre. And so, yeah, they grew up in their public school orchestra and did youth symphony, but they also had a garage band or learned Celtic music and played at local Irish sessions or went to fiddle camps. And so I... And sometimes we don't get people who have that breadth, but they're coming to us because they're hungry to get that. And our yeah. doors are open to anybody. But ideally, what I would love for students to be able to experience is to be able to experience many different styles, hopefully some in depth. I mean, if if I could change musical upbringings with anybody, I would swap with Sarah Caswell who learned classical with Joseph Gingold, Joshua Bell's teacher, and jazz with David Baker, one of the great all-time jazz teachers. And so she was really in-depth in both. Now, granted, most of us are not going to have that, and we don't necessarily need that, but I'd like for us to be able to explore more than one thing. And if our school doesn't have it, we can do it on our own. I mean, another thing that I like to see are students who are doing a lot of creative work, either arranging songs for themselves and their friends or even solo looping or composing original music. So it's, if people have their eyes and ears open to multiple genres, are playing in multiple styles of ensembles, are starting to find their own unique individual voice, that sets them up better. Yes, I would love for people to have as comprehensive a technique as whatever they're able to to get into and granted a comprehensive technique means something different in every style for classical it might mean three octave scales and double stops and right and those things but for celtic it means being able to play some some really specific ornaments and rhythms and cuts i can't do that that yet you know that really yeah that fast thing You know, I'm I'm impeded. I can't do that. I can swing, but I can't do that. So I I would not say I have a comprehensive Celtic technique, but, you know, that attention to detail. Um, I mean, I think about how when Suzuki was starting out, he said his his main point was to expose people to music and look at music as a mother tongue. And if you start people early enough, it's like language. They'll be able to speak it. I feel similarly if people open up their hands and their fingers sooner, they're able to do more things. I mean, I have students who can do way more than I do just in terms of across the board. Something else I would love for students to have and develop is an understanding of music theory, because
0: Mm.
1: at Berkeley. If you haven't had a solid grounding in music theory, we'll give it to you. But your first year, it'll be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose where it's just like, whoa, overload, you know, and I I, there's almost like a week in the first semester of freshmen where they they glaze over and they have a, (laughs) like, man, maybe I should go pursue a career in medicine or plumbing or something. I don't know about this, you know. Um, So I think... uh, Just knowing more helps. And we're starting to to get some more information out there. Rob Thomas had published a book, A Modern Method for Violin Scales, which great book. Oh, I love that. You know, that I was so happy and proud when when we I it's like I said, Rob, you gotta publish this. You know, whether you do it with Berkeley Press on your own, I don't care. Because it's like back in the day when you and I were teaching at the Berkeley camps. You know i'd heard man there's this cat rob thomas and he's got the scale book it's like required for all berkeley students and i went to the bookstore and like we never heard of this it doesn't exist and huh. it turns out it was like the real book you know you had you had to know somebody who knew <laughs> show up in a dark alley you know it's, it's like it. uh you know rob actually lived only about a five minute walk away from where i lived in new york you know, and so I arranged a lesson with him, and he gave me whatever copy he had at that time, and he was still revising it, <laughs> revising and perfecting it. But yeah, a couple years ago that came out, and it's got some brilliant fingerings, but you'll learn to play in all seven diatonic modes, you'll understand how the modes line up with chords, and you'll know that, okay, I see a a major seven sharp 11 chord and that means i'm gonna whip out my lydian scale and i got your changes right here you know yeah, nice so that kind of stuff is good mimi's actually working on a book which i think is going to be called berkeley arpeggios but it basically is a book schooling you on arpeggios and main, most of the common chord progressions, you know like taking your five to ones across the circle of fifths, two five ones, tritone substitutions, and it's all in first position. Hmm. I mean all the money's in first position. <laughs> But you, know, like you get fluent in these things. And if you've got if you're doing them with play alongs and you're learning the theory, then, you know, you're coming to the table with a whole lot more knowledge in your pocket. I mean, I mean, I even remember I had some some music theory as part of my piano lessons growing up. But I remember my freshman year of college just being indignant and, you know, I was. I was in orchestra all of junior high and all of high school and no one told me what a sonata form was. No one told me about chord progressions or how this works. And I I just felt like so much of my knowledge was left out because it was all about let's play, let's get ready for the competition. And granted, I had great strings education and my teachers were fantastic, but I felt like there was a gap in theoretical training and I felt like there was a gap in creativity. You know, because, I mean, the bass players got to play in jazz band, and they would do that. Yeah. But, you know, it wasn't even thought that, yeah, we could have cello or violin or viola in jazz band. It's just, you don't do that. Yeah. Well, I'd like to see that change. You know, I'd like to see a lot more creative ensembles. And I'd also like to see the rhythmic uh, vocabulary opened up. Because, I mean, there are very good rules that are out there for classical bowings and classical music, but it doesn't translate to groove-based American vernacular. Right. And, and honestly, you know, it's really the difference between Europe and Africa, because a lot of the rhythms that we're playing came to us Especially if you look at the American South and Southern fiddling versus Northern, there's all these polyrhythms. There's all these complex things. Well where are those coming from? They're coming from Africa. They didn't come from England and Ireland. Yeah. so, and that in turn infused everything that was going on in Dixieland and jazz and swing and everything else that's morphed from from the music of the African diaspora. And so it's like, if you don't include that rhythmic language as part of the training, you're shutting your students off from the language of a huge section of America and American culture. You yeah. Know? So I feel like we're doing a disservice unless we start to expand and incorporate uh, a deeper understanding of how you do that with stringed instruments.
0: Yes, exactly. You know, what, I'm, what I see all the time <clears throat> with like high school kids uh, and these are the kids who are you know getting ready to go to Berkeley or other places, string players, um, is that they they love uh, you know a lot of them you know really genuinely love classical music and, and are playing in the orchestra and, and are loving that, but they also listen to a lot of other music. It's not like they're unfamiliar with the popular culture around them. It's really hard to do that in a high school you know to, to, to somehow not, hear drake or something you know whatever um and the problem is they ha- th- there is these are just two separate worlds they have no way of of putting these two together uh so if they want to play the music of their that their friends are listening to they're just like well how do i do this on a violin what am i supposed to do um you know i know how to play gavotte <laughs> when you're uh, if you're in a band. Uh, or you're a guitar player or something, you're pretty much always playing the music more or less of your culture. You're playing, you know, a jazzy thing or whatever. Uh, At least it sounds a lot like the popular music that you hear on the radio. Strings are just not that way because strings haven't been a part of that popular music. But it's just interesting to talk to somebody like you who's right there in the midst of it you're getting them coming in wanting to play those things, not quite knowing how to do it. And I guess part of my um, question is like, you know, how do we fix that? How, how, do, we, how do we help string players to, to not end up playing for five or 10 years and
1: still feeling disassociated from their own musical culture? I mean, I think it's something that has to be addressed immediately. You know, even if you don't have an outlet, you have your instrument and you have the music you love. And so right. that's the first thing is dive in. You know, it's like I remember years ago when I was like, man, I'd, I'd love to learn some jazz and I don't know where to start. And a friend of mine, Dave Egar, a cellist, had actually, you know, he said, well, just put on Miles Davis kind of blue and start playing along with it. Yeah. And I exactly. didn't know I didn't know thing one about modal jazz or how to play, but I just said, okay, I've got an ear, i right. got an instrument, and I just started playing, imitating what I heard, Yep. trying to do some things. I mean, Trent, you had mentioned about what I'd like people to be able to, to have. Um, the skill of transcribing is so important. I mean, honestly, I think I learned the most about Texas-style fiddling by spending a whole summer with earphones on and transcribing old jam session recordings or records of some of the masters and slowing things down. And again, with transcribing, you don't necessarily have to write things down. I know like Mimi Rabson and Sarah Caswell to talk about transcribing with your instrument where they prefer don't write it down. Just learn Learn it. And that's the most serious, most direct way. I, I will say that sometimes writing things down can be helpful to clarify yeah. Especially if you're a classical. Yeah. And for me, it was almost too overwhelming. Like, it's like, I don't think my short-term memory can handle a Charlie Parker solo yeah. <laughs> without, you know, notating a few things, you know. And, right. and so I, right. eventually I got myself more to learning by ear completely. But, you know, just transcribing is, you know, it's it's like a, a muscle memory or a muscle for your ear. And the more you train, the better you get at it. Now, granted, I don't think I'll ever be as fast with my ear and my fingers as some of the best students I know who grew up on oral traditions because yeah. that's their bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, nonetheless, by getting better at things and learning more, um, you know, I'm more adept with that. So, so you know, I'd say if, if you don't have anything right away, I would start with your instrument and start with the music you love. Yep. You know, Dive deep into this podcast, maybe look around and who are some people that you can play with. I mean, I played my violin with my dad all the time. He was a, a chemical engineer, but also a, a great rhythm guitarist. He just oh, cool. loved playing rhythm. You know, and so I would play tunes with him, and I know that gave me a better understanding for harmony and a better understanding for playing with a groove, because you had that discipline. You know, and as a matter of fact, also, you know, I I hate musical stereotyping for obvious reasons as a violist, but I will say, (laughs) who just play by themselves like harpists and pianists if they've never had that opportunity to play in a large or small ensemble or even a duo, they're disabled rhythmically. You know, it takes that much more. You know, in fact, we have a specific kind of boot camp ensemble for harpists who enter Berkeley and Felice Pomerantz, who is a fantastic teacher and jazz harpist like schools them an entire semester with rhythm section playing everything from gospel to disco to pop to ska and just getting used to playing with a constant rhythm backbeat and not in yeah. and, and yielding your rhythm to the groove of the group you know it's yeah. that's the one thing you can't do as much on your own although if you read Victor Wooten's book um where he talks music about, lesson. Yeah. yeah, you know, where he talks about, you know, playing with Miles Davis, you know, and how, you know, it just, you can enter that realm of the recording, but, you know, it's playing with real musicians is always going to be a better, deeper experience than play along. So I'd say, you know, find people to play with. I, I yeah. the best musicians I know got to be better by jamming and with the yeah. You know, I spent years as a church musician every Sunday morning jamming in many different styles and just having that schooling. You know, I also you know, that's one of the things that I kind of realized about a lot of the great jazz musicians. There's two tried and true ways that you can like get your stage chops and improvising chops and one is playing at church and the other's playing in the clubs and I've done both and they both provide different things you know but I'd say yeah. you need that opportunity to jam with people same thing I mean the Beatles played a, they were a bar band basically yeah playing in a pub but they dialed it in you know 8 hour days just that Playing and playing and playing had yeah. not taken that time to become a great grooving live band. I don't think those later recordings, where it was created in the studio, would have had anything to hold together. But they had developed as uh, musicians who locked in and kind of that zen thing of giving over to the group uh, groove.
0: Yeah, yes, which is, you know, the whole idea of a constant groove is something that uh, is actually foreign to a lot of classical players. Um, and it's, it's an interesting thing, you know, I, I refer to it as the emotional grid that classical players tend to use rather than an actual rhythmic grid, like a drum beat or a metronome is a rhythmic grid, right? Um, it doesn't change. It's always gonna be the same. And that is the power of a groove is that it doesn't change. That constancy is what gives it the power. The, the just the feeling that it started, you know, at the beginning of the, when the earth began is going to go till the end of the universe. That sense of constancy, that's the power. That's the eternity of the groove. But for a lot of classical players, it's a very different thing. The time the the groove time, the beat is something that you are expected to manipulate to use and and this is the the one of the main ways of being expressive in classical music is to, you know, uh, uh, bend that that beat and and work with it and that's so it's a very different thing when you tell classical players stay straight they think well this is just mechanical this isn't musical this is you know uh, uh, not. It, I'm not. Exp- I'm not being expressive. I'm being like a like a you know mechanical. Uh, and the the funny thing is nothing could be further from the truth. Um, it, it's not mechanical just because it's repetitious. You know there is beauty in repetition. And the whole African drumming tradition and so many musical traditions are based on a lot of repetition, but not exact repetition. And that's the part that a lot of classical musicians, I think, misinterpret because of the fact that our classical training teaches us to try to replicate things exactly the same way every time. At least, even if we don't want to do that, we should be able to do that. That should be a skill that we master. Um, and this idea of taking something uh, and repeating it slightly differently every time, you know, and having all of these myriad variants of of a groove, uh, it's just not... That kind of interpretive license is not given to classical players. That's given to the composer. But once he puts those notes on the page, your job is just to read those notes. You don't get to add your own notes. So that freedom to do that, and then the freedom to take that music off your stand, throw it away, listen to a track, and invent something. To be creative on that level is something that I was never taught at Juilliard or in any of my lessons before that, really. Um, So for me, being a classical musician was this thing of trying to play perfectly, as perfectly as I I could, and being a creative musician was completely different. Have fun, explore. These were like completely two. different. Uh, you know, diametrically opposed things. One was trying to play correctly. The other was trying to explore and not caring if I didn't play correctly. And in fact, scientists have discovered that you have to suppress that correct part of your brain in order to be creative. Uh, so I don't know, I just find that very interesting. And I think that's a a, a trap that a lot of string players find themselves into, in. They're taught how to read how to play but then they want to play the music all around them and they don't know where to start how do i improvise i can't play without music and i guess i just want to say for all of you young string players who may be listening to this just do it just start doing it like david said just put on some music and play along to it uh it's going to be a little The first couple of times you try it, you might not know what to do, but just hold your violin like a guitar and strum it for a minute. See what happens and then pick it up and keep the same feeling and see what happens and dance around. Don't sit down, stand up, do things that engage your body Uh, and just get into the music and see what comes out. That's freedom that
1: I was never given. Even repeated rhythms like in Haydn or Mozart, it can... It can group. I mean, Karen Tuttle was one of the best rhythm players I've ever known. And I studied with her. Alexander Schneider had a quartet called the Schneider Quartet. And so I was listening just to make sure that I knew this piece and knew it well. I'm like, oh my, who is playing viola? Because it was like an engine. Just nothing but steady eighths or sixteenths yeah it had a life a pulsation dynamic direction and it was Karen Tuttle she she was driving the bus i mean yep. the fun thing about sitting in the violin two chair or the viola chair is you more often than not are the one who gets to propel the music and yes. the groove and so <laughs> I'm sort of bored but i didn't know hey one of the real joys in life is providing the groove. And yeah. you don't provide the groove by playing different notes all the time. You provide the groove with consistency and repetition. You know, and so I think that's that's another problem to right. overcome is this false uh, hierarchy where there's the the hegemony of melody where melody matters and nothing else does. You know, right. so it's like it's like no the melody doesn't have a platform unless it has support from the yeah. harmony and the rhythm.
0: so almost, almost every melody that you can think of in a classical context um, exists within the framework, framework of a pulse of some kind. Even the slowest melody, like, you know, adagio, a barber's adagio for strings. It's a slow pulse, but there's a pulse. And that, in fact, that slow, stately, grave kind of pulse is what gives it so much power. Same thing with the Chaconne, it's not a fast pulse in Bach Chaconne, but it is steady and it's very, um, you know, it's, that, it, it's the power behind it, you know. Again, it's, it, it's not mechanical, um, it, it's just a different type of musicality. It's, it's a, getting a power out of the music in a different way, rather than just through the, line, through the melodic line. And, and that's where a lot, of, a lot of the power in contemporary music lies. The argument of it being mechanical uh, is just something that I think classical players need to get over and just experiment with and live with a little bit. And you'll see how much life there is going on in that rhythm section, how much variety there is actually going on if you listen carefully, even in a typical, uh, very commercial pop song.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, Doc Wallace, here we are at the final segment of our show, and uh, this is where we give you trivia questions about something you know absolutely nothing about. It's called something we call "not my gig." <laughs> Doc Wallace, I am going to see how much you know about Doc Martens. Oh no, the shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so get two out of three right, and you got two out of three right. Okay. First question multiple choice. Doc Martens originated in what city? A. Seattle, Washington. B. Amsterdam, the Netherlands.
1: Or C. Northampton, England. Let's see. Um, I'm going to go with Seattle, Washington. Well, I put that in there
0: to try to trick you because of all of the uh, sort of grungers and punkers who wear them. But actually, they originated in Northampton, England, or just outside.
1: That was so my I'll... second guess.
0: But... <laughs> okay. Never fear. Never fear. There are some more questions here. <laughs> All right. So let's see. Uh, Doc Martens are known for their trademark stitching. What color is that stitching? Is it A, white, B, tan, or C,
1: yellow? Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm going to go tan. It's yellow. Ah.
0: Close to tan. <laughs> Very close
1: to tan, no worries, no worries. It's always been like the first go-to, and the second one is the right answer. So, no. All right, well, I don't know. We'll,
0: we'll try this one. We'll try this one. <laughs> so Dr. Klaus Martens and Herbert Funk first marketed their new shoe design in 1947 using discarded car tires for the soles. The first decade of their business, they were a big hit with what demographic? A, women over 40, B, males 18 to 25, or C, construction workers? Hmm. I'll give you a hint. Don't go with your first instinct.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to go with construction workers actually women over 40 40 (laughs) ha ha because
0: they actually marketed it as being you know uh easier on your feet gotcha for for you know women who are doing a lot of household chores this was in england in the 40s so you know never fear Never fear. We have a final shootout round. Oh, no. Like in soccer, like the penalty kick at the end. You can win the whole thing just by getting this one right. But if I
1: get it wrong, I can officially lose the whole thing. You officially lose. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, true or false? This is just a true or false.
0: The original Dark Martins boot was sold exclusively through the Sears
1: catalog. I'm going to go false. It is false. Yeah. You win the
0: whole shebang, <laughs> pulling it out on the last,
1: you on the last shootout question. Well, Here, to it be just there, you know, knowing that it's British, I would not think the Sears catalog, if it were centered in Iowa or something, exactly. Sears would have a better shot at it. But uh, exactly. There you wow. go, a little context. Be like, well, forget this guy. We don't want to hear his music because he doesn't know his Doc Martens. He just doesn't know his Doc Martens. lost his street
0: cred. <laughs> have you ever owned a pair of Doc Martens? I thought you were going to say, have you ever had any street cred? <laughs> <laughs> I've never owned Doc Martens, so I would never have known the, the color of the stitching or anything I, I like
1: that. I have not owned any Doc Martens. I, I had Ked's growing up i i think converse i mean adidas were my go-to when i was doing athletics and had some puma cleats for a while but you know later in life uh new balance and brooks were kind of my shoes you know especially for jogging shoes I did try, like, the 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 Vibram five fingers, you know. Oh, yes, the, the shoe glove. Yeah, those, those kinds of things. The foot glove. I went minimalist with my footwear, and I actually liked that and kind of went from a hind foot to a four-foot four foot runner. Um, so that actually was a positive thing, but ultimately I also just kind of found that those things were a little too thin. Yeah, know. not a lot of cushion. Well, the Doc Martens always
0: seemed to me like, how am I supposed to walk around in those? They're, they seemed very heavy. It seemed like I wasn't strong enough to walk any distance in those things. Yeah, that's... <laughs> well, Doc, I got to say, it doesn't really matter how much you know about Doc Martens because you know so much about the viola and strings and teaching the kids. And and for that, we are supremely grateful
1: I am grateful to be here, Tracy, and grateful for you and all that you're doing for the greater groove. For the greater groove. And, you know, I didn't mention this in the intro,
0: but there would not be a strum-bowing method book if it were not for Doc Wallace, because I was working on this thing for about 10 years, and I had it, you know, strewn around various Word files on my computer, uh, and I Kept telling people about it. I was teaching it for years, but I didn't have anything on paper that I could show anybody. And you kept telling me, dude, you have to finish this. Stop what you're doing and finish your book. And so I finally did. And I consider you the godfather of this book because if it were not for your care and nurturing of it, uh, and besides the fact that you gave me so many great, uh, so, ma- so many great ideas and advice about what to include in it, and things like that, uh, had such a huge impact on the actual writing of the book. And so, once again, uh, thank you for that.
1: Well, that I mean that warms my heart. But like when I've read even an early draft, I'm like I'm like holy cow, this is the grand unified theorem. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of good resources, you know, like w- there was that video with, with uh, Casey Drees and Rashad Eggleston and, and Yep, Daryl Chops and Grooves, which was maybe one of the best resources at the time, you know, and there were different things like that, or you could attend a clinic, but we still didn't really know what made things work or how to unlock something for ourselves, you know, and so I yeah. really looked to your book is like the philosopher's stone of like, okay, <laughs> wow, it doesn't matter if it's ska, funk, hip hop, reggae, metal, whatever it is. And even, I'd, I'd also argue that this stuff can be applied to the classical canon, you know?
0: Very much so. Very much so. In fact, that was your suggestion, was that I include a chapter in there about how to do that and how it relates to classical music, uh, which was a very important addition to the book. So, Thank you for that. Um, yeah, well, wonderful, and just thanks for being here, man. Thanks. Love you, love you, David. Love you too, man. Take care, my friend. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya.
1: Groove on.